Good morning. Once more, please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 John once again as we continue through chapter 4. I've titled this sermon, God is Love, because in it we get the famous verse about God being love. And part of our task today, seek to understand what that means. Follow along with me as I read verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The main point of this text is clear enough that Christians should love one another as God has loved them. Our study of the last few paragraphs, one theologian writes, has been rather like a progression through the anterooms of a great palace, each one more breathtaking as we move near to the throne room. We've seen the splendor of the king's magnificent provision for his children and the revolutionary difference of their attitudes and actions when compared with those of the world. We've marveled at His detailed love and care for each one of us, accepting us in our weakness and producing confidence in our lives as we reflect His love. But now, the magnificence becomes overwhelming as the throne room doors are flung open and we are introduced to the glorious person who has done all of this, the God who is love. And so John returns to this theme of love after verses 1 through 6 discussing discerning the spirits. And he exhorts his audience once more, this time again as children, to love one another. And then he gives a multi-tiered reason for doing so, doesn't he? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God... And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so that in saying that love is from God, he is saying that there is something unique about love, Christian love, as will be made very explicit, that it has its source in God. And how that relates to John's exhortation to love is twofold. And that is, one, that those who Love have been born of God, which is one an, an entrenched theme in John's theology. And then secondly, that they know God. Knowing God being another recurring theme in John's theology. Now that having been born, you will notice, and this is beautiful, it's in the perfect 
it's, it's past, but it's a perfect version of the past, means something that happened in the past, but has abiding effects into the future, which means that this kind of love isn't possible without being born of God, that the being born of God precedes the love here. Whoever loves has been born. Whoever is currently loving has been born of God. And so it takes being born of God to love in this unique kind of way. For whatever else love might mean, love like this requires being born of God. Those who are born of God are children of God and therefore robustly from Him and they should know Him because God is Love, verse 8. And the child looks like a parent. There is family resemblance. We've seen this before. Like father, like child, God is love, therefore let us love one another. We are from God, and love is from God. And so we arrive at one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, I don't know, top five, even by folks who aren't Christians. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, although God being defined by love is the crescendo of the last couple of paragraphs, and you might argue even more than that, we absolutely cannot afford to overlook the fact that the statement, God is love, which, by the way, is the only part of the verse anyone remembers, is given specifically to demonstrate that those who do not love, as embodied and defined by God, actually do not know God and therefore are not born of God. John is saying that God is Love, and so that people who don't love can't possibly know God. But the love isn't just any kind of love. It's explicitly qualified as a God-centered, God-defined love and nothing else. That's the part that is so frequently and conveniently left out when this verse is quoted back to Christians condemning immoral choices and lifestyles, right along with Matthew 7's Do Not Judge, secular person's favorite verse. If we don't love on God's terms, this unique kind of love that is from God, we aren't actually loving. Not like this. Not like this. And if we don't actually know God, and we don't, aren't actually born of God, then we're not children of God. Now that puts a little that puts a slightly different perspective on this verse, doesn't it? Doesn't that change the angle of this verse a little bit? You got to read the first part before you get to God is love because it's put in there to delineate people who are frauds versus those who are actually from God. They are loving in a particular way as defined by God. We are to be loving as God would have us love. We are to love our gay neighbor, our trans neighbor, whatever that means, our atheist neighbor, whatever that means, on God's terms. We should love our neighbor. This is primarily about loving one another. 
Just saying the same thing applies. Loving on God's terms, not someone else's terms for how they want to be loved, what they think love is. No, God is love, and if we're from God, we love with a love that has God as its source. That's it. That's it. Now, having said that God is love, I do want to make sure that no one's making a mistake. When it says that God is love, it's not some ontological statement. It's not saying that God is an attribute. Okay? That God is this abstract object, love. What it's saying, rather, just like when it says God is light. It's not saying that God is, you know, made up of light or something like that. It's not a statement about the the core kind of a thing God is. Rather, it's saying that He is, and in the, the, the following context makes this exceedingly clear, that He is the ultimate source and He is the true standard of love. Okay. And that love has been manifested between the persons of the Trinity forever, but now has been made manifest to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And John gives two overlapping realities that demonstrate this pure love of God, which dictates and defines what our love for one another, and I'm going to say other folks, should look like as well, derivatively. Verse 9, here's the first, here's the first reality that demonstrates God's pure Love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So God's love here for us is demonstrated in seeking life for us. God's love for us demonstrated by seeking life for us. A life that does go on forever and ever, as we've mentioned, but it is far more than that. It is a blessed and glorified life in the Son. The only Son whom God sent so that we could have this life in the first place. Sending His only Son. Now some of you are reading older translations This monogenes is sometimes translated, you've definitely heard it before, begotten, only begotten, right? Almost everyone's heard that language, right? Only begotten. Um, This is a theological interpretation of that Greek term introduced by Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate. But in the Greek, what, what is supposed to, it's supposed to accent here is the uniqueness of the Son. You and I are sons and daughters of God. God has many sons in that sense, okay? But what's you? there's no one who's a son like this one, okay? The emphasis is not primarily on his, you know, begottenness. It's on his uniqueness, his only son. And this is the only son that he sends to die. His only son that he sends to die. To die, And every time I, 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 I preach on a passage like this, I think of my own son, my little boy Will. You all see him running around here very merrily. And I love my son. And I love you. You all know that I love you. But I would never sacrifice my son for you. I'm sorry. I wouldn't do it. 
if y'all were both standing over a, you know, a pit that fell into the fire and I had to pull a lever, it would be you who was getting crispy. All right? I would not sacrifice my son for you. And I still love you. I wouldn't do it. But God says I have a unique son. I've got one. And I'm going to give him up. And I'm going to give him up for you so that you could have life. That's the first demonstration. Life. Second expression is overlapping, but it develops the first. He says... In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the theme of the sending of the only Son recurs, but there are two new elements added. The first is that God's love for us is apart from and prior to any love that we have for God. You see, it would be all too human, wouldn't it, if God loved us because we loved Him? I mean, isn't that how we often operate? We tend to have positive affection for, tend to really appreciate, tend to love folks who demonstrate their love for us. Someone demonstrates their love for us over and over and over and over. Oh man, it's quite easy to cultivate love to them. And the way we would generally talk about it, that's how it operates and John is saying, if that's, if that's how you're thinking about God's love, you are totally wrong. Like, totally wrong. To dip into Paul's language, he loved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and like the rest of the world, objects of wrath. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. God's initiating, gracious, efficacious love. It was totally independent of any love that we had for Him, or frankly, anything good that we had to offer Him, which is great news because we didn't have anything to offer except our sin that needs forgiveness. And so it's great that His love is manifested in this way, or it wouldn't be manifested at all. That's the first development of verse 9. The second is that his love took a very particular shape in the form of action. It's the only son who was sent that we might live, but that was accomplished through propitiation. Now, this word group, Hilasterian, we've seen it once already in 1 John, 1 John 2.2, 2, where he's the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we've already discussed this word, but to rehearse very briefly, in John's theology and the way he uses the word, this idea of propitiation combines satisfaction of wrath with purification from sins. Two distinct, not totally distinct, but two different concepts, okay? Satisfaction of wrath with purification of sin leading to forgiveness. And the way John thinks about it, propitiation seems to encompass them both as a package deal. And that is what Christ achieved. That is why we can have life. Jesus answers the problem of how God can be loving towards us while it remains true that there's no darkness in Him. How could a God of light in whom there is no darkness love dark people and still be just and holy? That takes us to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? 
Isn't that the heart of the gospel? How can God be just and holy and yet somehow simultaneously merciful and gracious? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is, if you've missed out on the Sunday School series, union with Christ such that we died with Christ we will be we have been raised up with Christ and because there has been a substitute for us because we have the righteousness of another credited to our account God can be just because he punishes our sin in Christ and we are in Christ we're punished through Christ and so we don't have anything that remains towards us except love the wrath of God has been satisfied because of Christ's propitiation. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. God remains holy and just, and we get out of condemnation. And it's just not just what we're saved from. We are saved to a God of love. We're saved to a God who is love. And we will experience that life that Christ came to bring forever and ever and ever. And so if God is love, verse 8, and that's what God's love looks like, 9 and 10, what do you think that means for us? You guessed it. Probably. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, just like in John 3.16, that so is not an, a so of emphasis. It's not an emphatic so, hutas. It's in this manner, okay? It's not, if God loved us so much, that's not it. It's not how it is in John 3, 16 either. For God loved the world so much, not it. For God loved the world in this particular way. Here's how He loved the world. That's what, it, that's what He's saying here. If God has loved us in this manner... We also ought to love one another. Our love for one another ought to take the same shape of God's love towards us. And that is the theme that we are going to return to in the application section in just a few moments here. But he draws an intermediate conclusion by saying this. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now initially, the first part of the verse might seem a little bit odd and out of place. Isn't that what you thought reading that? It did to me when I was studying the passage. What on earth does the fact that no one has seen God have anything to do with the second part of the verse? You ask a fine question, but it's our job to figure it out. Now, God's invisibility and the fact that no one has seen God does end up playing a significant role in John's theology. And one of those reasons is because Christ is the one who makes God visible. He's the one who's made manifest the invisible God. But we still have to ask how it's connected. And here's what I'm going to suggest. Okay, here's my best suggestion at putting the pieces together and understanding the explanatory relationship. Is that, that what is contained in the second half of this verse addresses a tension between us as creatures and God as creator in the first half of the verse. Okay, So, so let me give you a, an illustration. When we are with one another, maybe we're at each other's home, home or um, 
Um, you know, we're eating a meal in the restaurant, or we're here at church, or whatever the case may be. We might talk about being with, or remaining with, or connecting with each other in a variety of ways, but most of those ways are not going to apply when we talk about our withness with God, because He is invisible, He is spirit, He is immaterial. People say I was with I was spending time with God. Now, I don't actually say this out loud. I know exactly what people mean. They were spending time in the word and prayer. But if someone was pressing it, really, where was he? Did he show up at your house? There's a problem here with God being spirit, God being invisible. How do I know that God is with me? I know that you all are with me here this morning. I can see you all. I know that my wife and children are with me in my home. I can see them. How do I know that God is with me? And we seek to understand the second half of the verse in accordance with a theme that has occurred over and over in 1 John, how we know we start to get an answer here. How do I know that God is with me? Ah, there it is. If we love one another, God abides in us. To whatever extent we might feel God's presence at times, and probably everyone in here is at one point or another in their life, they just, you can't really explain it. Uh, it's like, I've just, I just felt the power of God and the presence of God in this moment. The vast majority of times in the Christian life, you're going to feel quite ordinary. Okay? The vast majority of the times, it's going to feel very ordinary. And you might be left wondering, where is God? People, have you maybe said that before? Where is God? Is God with me? How can I know? And what John is saying is that the way you can know that God abides in you, is with you, remains in you, doesn't rely on your five senses, and certainly not some kind of sixth God-sensing faculty sense, but whether or not you love one another. You want to know that God loves, don't look for your feet, don't look at your feelings, because your feelings will lie to you. Do you love one another? Yes, then God abides in you. That's what he says. The invisible God you cannot see is with you if you love one another. And, and his love is perfected in us when we love others. That is to say, it's not that something is wrong with God's love and we fix it up, it's that God's love meets its full end, its intended end. God's love for us in this context, the intended end is that we would love one another. One theologian says the circuit, I love this, the circuit of God's love is completed when we love one another. That's the idea. God loves us, and then here's how it comes full circle. God is love. We love one another. People see our love, and that is how you see God. That's how. Now, you say, Tyler, but you can, that's not like you kind of tricked me a little bit there. But, but that's how it develops here. We love one another. By this, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. They are going to see something. What are they going to see? They're going to see love. But God is love. 
You're going to see God in action when you look at believers loving one another because in that, the love of God is perfected. It is brought to its fullness and can be demonstrated. It can be seen as people love one another. And so, Christians should love one another as God has loved them. Simple, but also profound. Now, what I would like to do as we seek to practice the truth from this passage is zoom in on just one particular piece of application, and that is a paradigm for Christian love Drawing heavily from verse 10, I want to lay out a four-tiered paradigm for Christian love. And I hope this will serve to kind of concretize love in your mind, to take it from being something abstract to something that is doable. John says we ought to love one another in the same manner in which God has loved us. And it seems to me that that can be broken down to at least four levels. But to be very clear, all of this is prefaced on loving on God's terms because it is God's love that is from God that we are supposed to be wielding and acting. So God's love as defined by God, not defined by this person in your family, not defined by the culture, not defined by anything else. God is love. And only people who love according to God are the ones who actually know God. Everyone else is pretending. They have a different saying the same words with a different dictionary. So what are the four tiers, I would say? The first, you already see it there, love as action. Something that we've discussed before as we've moved through 1 John. Love as action. For whatever sentiments accompany love, Christian love is characterized by action. And that principle is very powerfully enforced here. Very powerfully reinforced, I should say, because God's love for us, the paradigm of our love for one another, is exclusively teased out in terms of action here, isn't it? What are we to make of God being love? Sending His only Son to cause us to live by atoning for our sin. And we are to love likewise. Loving one another, we, looked at, we kind of discussed this a little bit in chapter 3 when we looked at uh, bearing the, uh, excuse me, meeting the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. Love looks like showing up. It looks like doing things. It looks like praying for. Love is teased out in action. It is primarily an action word. And if we are to love one another like He has loved us, detached or loving deep down in our heart and nowhere else just doesn't have a place. Said it before. Detached hypothetical love, being a, someone who loves the brothers and sisters deep down in my heart but nowhere else. That's not the picture. The picture is love takes action. 
Love takes action and is understood as action. The second is related. Is love as independent from liking or worthiness? Which also takes us back to the heart of the gospel. This is, again, this is a theme that has come up before, but it gets this thunderous shout in this particular passage because John goes out of his way to clarify that God's love for us was not based on any love that we had for him, anything that we had to offer him whatsoever. Of course, the larger witness of the New Testament confirms this, that God's love expressed in sending his son to to save had nothing to do with anything good that dwelt in us, anything likable about us, anything enjoyable about us, anything delightful in us, that God did not move towards us because we had qualities that elicited warm feelings. If there's any question that we are to love one another apart from the presence of likability or desirability or worthiness, we can consider Jesus himself who says, love your enemies. If loving your enemies is possible, then biblical love doesn't require certain kinds of feelings or liking the person in front of you. Surely if we can love our enemies, we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ who we don't necessarily jive with. Maybe we just don't prefer them. Maybe they rub us the wrong way. John would say, who cares? That doesn't have anything to do with loving one another in the church. You don't have to like somebody. This isn't likability camp. We are, to, we are called to love one another on the basis of Christ's love for us. Just, just this week, no, maybe it was two weeks ago. Yes, two weeks ago, we got word of a, um, a man leaving his wife. Why? He just didn't like her anymore. She just wasn't enjoyable to be around. wasn't fun to be around like she used to be. So you know what he decided? I'm gone. I'm leaving. A marriage covenant, like any other friendship, that is based on like is not going to get it done. And it's not Christian love. You will, to quote Dr. Keller, You've been married long enough. You'll have seasons where you fall out of like, as he says, with your spouse. And if, if you have mistaken loving for liking, you will have zero reason to stay outside of pragmatism. Kids, money, whatever. If you can find a way around those, you're out. Christian love is not based on liking. Christian love is based on the paradigm set by Jesus Christ who came to lay his life down for us, which is the third tier of Christian love. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of others. 
Now, you might say that could have been subsumed under the love is action tier, but this focuses on a particular shape that Christian action takes, and that is self-sacrifice. Again, something we discussed in conjunction with chapter uh, 3, 17, and 18 when we talked about helping brothers and sisters in need. Even if we are just sacrificing our time in prayer, praying for someone, that's meaningful. That's meaningful. We're still sacrificing for their good. And of course, we can imagine sacrificing for one another in any variety of, of ways, just as God endured tremendous self-sacrifice as a perfect expression of love. The truth is this. We have a tendency to love on our own terms in ways that are helpful and appreciated but may not really involve very much self-sacrifice at all. We may pick and choose opportunities to love and serve that are the easiest, that require the smallest amount of commitment, and are the least inconvenient to our schedule. And I would suggest that this paradigm here challenges all of us to look at the self-sacrificial nature of God's love and ourselves and ask what it might tell us about the ways we prefer to love. Now, let me just be very clear. I am not saying that true love is impossible unless, you know, without experiencing something negative or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I am suggesting this, is that if our love isn't regularly characterized by self-sacrifice in one way or another, we might want to reconsider if we're loving according to Scripture or we're just being decent human beings and finding opportunities to love that are really just opportunities to do certain things we like anyways. Okay? I like doing this. I really like doing this. I'm going to love by doing this. And I'm saying you can love somebody doing that. Absolutely. Please don't hear me say otherwise. But is your life characterized by self-sacrificial love? Not love that always is energizing to you because you love doing it, and frankly, you would do it anyways, right? That's the third tier. And then finally, love is forgiveness. Love is forgiveness. You heard it in Ephesians 4. We see the example in verse 10 as a part of God's perfecting Love in us, we are to forgive one another. That is, after all, the fruit of propitiation. The forgiveness of our sins. You read the, hear this in, again, 4.32. Ephesians 4.32, clarify, we forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave us. Now, forgiveness could be an entire series, probably. Forgiveness is a deep and wide topic. But the Bible describes forgiveness as canceling a relational debt because of wrongdoing. Canceling a debt. And the idea that we as Christians are going to make it our practice to forgive someone when they've done enough to earn our forgiveness, performed their way out of the doghouse, or made enough amends to satisfy us is not a love that comes from God. It's not. It's not true forgiveness. 
forgiving on the basis of waiting for people to earn back our forgiveness, perform well enough to get out of the doghouse, or make amends until we are satisfied, is not forgiving love like we see here. It just isn't. At the very least, we should have a disposition to forgive, a posture of forgiveness, even when no one is asking for it. You see it with Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Stephen says something very similar and he's getting stoned. This is posture of forgiveness even if no one came asking for it. No one asked me for forgiveness. I still have this posture of wanting to forgive. I desire to forgive. And then hopefully we will have the opportunity to interact with people who say, will you please forgive me? And we can say, as my heavenly Father has forgiven me in Jesus, yes, I would be delighted to forgive you. I would be delighted to forgive you and therefore not dwell on this anymore. Not speak to anyone about this anymore. Not to bring this up in the future to use it against you anymore. To present you in the best light in my mind and assume the best. Yes. I will forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. Love is action. Love is independent from liking or worthiness. Love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. And love as forgiveness. I want to close with an excellent summary quote from a woman who's writing on this particular passage. Listen to what she says. She says, The command to love is not a demand for forced intimacy or shallow sentimentality. It is a command to meet the needs of others when we encounter them. To act with redemptive love towards others means to forgive those who need our forgiveness just as God forgave us in Christ. It means to spend our time and money meeting the needs of others. And in certain rare and extreme instances, it may mean actually giving our lives so that others might live. And so as God has loved us, I challenge you today in the grace of Christ to love one another. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to have a sacrificial lamb who has demonstrated to us a love greater than we could ever conceive. Lord, we pause and just say thank you for this gospel. And thank you for sending your own son, your only son, so that we might have life. And so that we can have hope on a bad Wednesday. And that we can have faith when medical reports aren't good. And that we can keep perspective when life goes dark. And so that we could have resilience to love folks who we just do not care for. Help us to serve and love in the power that you provide to the glory of your name. So that people can see the love of God in us. And that so that in us, the love of God will be perfected. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.